turn to Psalm 65. Psalm 65. One thing about the Psalms is that they are put in an intentional order by God with a specific design that we're supposed to see in their interconnectedness. In other words, we have 150 Psalms, and there's a lot of Psalms to look at, and one thing we have to see is that there is an order, there is a flow that the author, God, has intended for us to see. We have been looking for several weeks now at the previous Psalms where David is crying out to the Lord because his enemies are attacking him. And he is praying to the Lord, begging the Lord, pleading with the Lord that the Lord would hear his prayers. And so when we get to Psalm 65 through Psalm 68, we see David rejoicing that the Lord has indeed answered his prayers, that the Lord has heard him, that the Lord has rescued him. And so as we look at this psalm this evening, we could simply just ask this question, what is the proper response of the saint to God when he answers our prayer? What is it that, how are we supposed to respond uh, to the Lord? Another thing that we see uh, that this psalm uh, answers for us very um, theologically is why we pray, why we worship, why we have the Godward desires that we have. It answers those questions because those are not intrinsic for us in our fallen human nature. We do not desire God. We do not seek after God. Something changes. And this psalm tells us what it is that changes in us that gives us this desire for God. This is a psalm of David. It's a song. It was to the choir master. So this would be sung amongst the congregation in a time of worship. And so let us remember that this is a, a hymn. So let us hear this, the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 65 in verse 1. Praise is due to you. O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs." You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. 
Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. There's three easily divisible sections in this psalm, and the the first is verses 1 through 4, where we see it's the worship of the chosen. Verses 5 through 8, we see answers are given to the chosen. And then verses 9 through 13, we see the blessings that are poured out upon the chosen. And so you gather the theme. This is of the chosen and their worship of God. And it begins with this worship in in verse 1. After David's prayer has been answered, his enemies have been vanquished, he's experiencing the peace that God has given him in answer to his prayer. It silences him. Praise is due to you. Praise is due to you. In some translations, it says, Oh, praise waits for you in silence. And what does that mean? That is just simply a reverential worship of God. It's as if when God answered David's prayers, it it strikes him speechless that he can't speak. It's a a silent hush. It's It's a reverence before God. I think that that reverence of silence is necessary for us to learn from today. Before we go into worship, before we go into God's appointed times, of worship, oftentimes we're caught up in fellowship, which is beautiful and it's wonderful. But that reverence of worship, we sometimes need that to clear our minds of the secular and to realize that we've crossed over into the holy. And that is certainly what is being spoken of here. But in a response... And this is a this is in a a time of worship, for David says, "O God in Zion," and he's speaking of the city of David, Zion, the appointed place of where the tabernacle, where God would show them to plant His center of worship, which would eventually become the place of the temple, and then and to you vows be performed. So he's speaking of worship. And this is a song, and he starts off in the song speaking of that, that hush that God is due. And you think of how important that can be to gather our thoughts and to focus in on what we're here for. David goes on to say, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. What a statement after David pleading with God, hear my prayers. What a statement after several psalms of pleading, Lord, will you hear me? Will you rescue me? You know what's interesting in those psalms, the previous psalms where David is pleading with God to rescue him from his enemies, he always states the enemies being vanquished as a statement of historical fact, even though it had yet to have happened. 
David never questioned whether God hears our prayers. Then he says this most interesting statement in this song of worship. When iniquities prevail against me. And just pause there. What does David mean when he says, when iniquities prevail against me? This is speaking of, can be looked at it in a multifaceted way. The first thing is this, is our sins accuse us. But I want you to notice in this text, not only do our sins accuse us, but we're given a reminder. You atone for our transgressions. And so if you can look at it like this, as David speaks of sins working against him, but then we're given the reminder that we're forgiven because God himself makes atonement. That word prevail, it means something is too strong for us. It overpowers us. It's a very vivid word. In fact, it's used in the flood. Let me just read how it's translated elsewhere so we can get a, maybe a proper idea of how this word functions. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 19, it says, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. This is speaking of the catastrophic event of the flood in which the whole entire earth, its surface, was covered in water. In a torrential way in which the whole earth could be covered in water in a matter of 40 days. That is an inconceivable amount of water and power. There's no force on earth that could have withstood the amount of power. It prevailed over nature. So you get an idea of what that word prevail, the force of it can be. And so what is David saying? He says something that I think we can probably all relate to is that iniquities prevail against me. Sin prevails against me. And there's a couple of ways you can think about it. Is that iniquity, in terms of being committed, were paralyzed by guilt. Iniquities and can bring about guilt. It can paralyze us. You think of the guilt of Judas. Judas didn't repent. What did his guilt lead him to do? It prevailed against him. It can prevail against us in acting on our impulses, the things that, that come up in terms of temptations, inner temptations, outward temptations that come up. They prevail against us. Sometimes they're too strong for us. But there's another way uh, that iniquity prevails against us and it overpowers us, and this fits the context most clearly, is that when I commit sin, I cannot make atonement for my sin. It controls me. It overwhelms me. I cannot do anything of my own merit to have atonement. If I have sinned, it has made me guilty before God. It has made me helpless. I would be nothing more than just a twig 
standing up to the flood waters in the Noahic flood if it was up to me to fight against sin. Sin renders me guilty. Sin makes me culpable. And God is a just God. We cannot atone for our sins, but we have atonement because God is the one who makes atonement. Notice how David states this. You atone for our transgressions. And now notice the singular in the first line and the plural in the second. The first line is this, when iniquities prevail against me, the plural is you atone for our transgressions. He's speaking corporately for his people. Speaking of the wideness of of God's forgiveness that he brings. But only God can bring atonement. We cannot atone for our sins. But I want you to think about this for a second. When iniquities prevail against me, is that true of you and I? If you're in Christ this evening, is that true of us? You have to just ask yourself this question in light of That is who are we? And I'm speaking to you, Christian. I'm speaking to you as the one that Christ has called and has risen from the dead. Is that true of you, the one that's called a saint? The one that's called sanctified? the one that's called set apart, that's called holy. Is that true of you? Listen to what Scripture says. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you. So is that true of you? No. If you're in Christ, sin has no dominion over you any longer. Christ has broken sin's dominion over you. And what do you, what do you mean? Because I struggle with sin, and John says anyone that says they don't sin is a liar. Peter says this, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's that inner struggle that every Christian has. There's a north and south fighting against one another inside of you right now. But the point is, is that it no longer has dominion over you. It no longer controls you. Do you sin? Yes. You will sin until Christ brings you home but it no longer controls you. And this is what we must understand about being made anew in Christ is this, is that before Christ, all we could do is sin. You never thought about God's glory before coming to Christ. So there was nothing you ever did that was pure and holy and for God's glory. It is only when you have been made new And so now as you come into Christ, it's almost as if you're restored to that place where Adam Adam had the the freedom to sin or not sin. When you're in Christ, you have the freedom to sin or not sin. 
when you're not in Christ, you have the freedom to sin. So yes, we have that struggle, but the reality is, is that Christ has set us free. Christ has made us new. And while we still struggle, we know we still struggle, and that's why we have so much in the Bible that directs us on how to live. We have been made new. Verse 4 makes this clear. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Let's just hang out there for a moment. Blessed, that is, that is the idea of happy, or it's, oh, the blessedness. It reminds you of Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one you choose, who chooses, that God chooses. God is the antecedent of all of this. God is the one who hears prayers. God is the one who is due praise. God is the one who atones for our transgressions. So blessed is the one that God chooses, the one that God sets apart. This is speaking of nothing less than God's election of a people. They are blessed because God has chosen them. But then... Election is not the only thing. What you see is that those that God choose actually respond because God brings them near. God effectually calls them. You think of Christ saying, my sheep hear my voice. Let me ask you. Now, this could be cliche for some, but it's still nonetheless true. When Jesus called Lazarus' name to come forth, was Lazarus going to reject Christ? No. And when Christ called your name, and you were dead, and you were enslaved to sin, and Christ calls your name, were you going to reject him? No. If you were chosen by him, you will respond to him. And look what it says. You'll be brought near. Now think about that. The presence of God in the Old Testament, to be able to experience the presence of God for the Israelites through worship, and this is in the setting of worship, what had to take place? All of these ceremonial things and offerings had to take place before they would be able to experience the presence of God. There were certain things that God had to accept, but the one that God chooses, God brings near, which means this, you're accepted before God. Why? Because you've been made righteous and he accepts you because of his son it has to be this way to be brought near because when we were dead in our sins and trespasses there is no way we would choose God we would reject him you know the beauty of election must comfort our souls because we know that we're chosen by God and God has no obligation. There's nothing we did that, that forced God's hand. 
in choosing us. It was according to his good pleasure. It was according to his perfect immutable plan. But look at the beauty of this. Peter, in writing to the church that is experiencing persecution, reminds them of what? The doctrine of election. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice what it says. He caused us to be born again. And that He has for us, waiting for us, that He'll bring us near to Him eternally. What a wonderful truth. Why does He do this for us? Well, because He forgives us. He atones for sins. And that comes through the blood of Christ. You see, what we see here is sin is too great for us, but God alone forgives. But not only does He forgive us, the text teaches us that we are chosen, we are accepted, we are brought into His presence to worship Him. Now you need to know something. Is that's a reality right at this moment. If you're in Christ... Christ has brought you near to Him now. In fact, we are promised that the triune God dwells with us. In fact, we told this by Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is speaking of the Spirit dwelling with the people. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and this, and we. That's speaking of the Father and Jesus. We will come to him and make our home with him. The triune God dwells by the Spirit in every single believer. Boy, that makes the word blessed seem almost inadequate. The truth that the triune God dwells with his people. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. That's a present reality for the Christian right now. No wonder it says, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Yes, we are satisfied in God because he is so great and marvelous to know that we have been set free of our sins and that God will make his dwelling with us even now and that he fills our heart of a future inheritance that is beyond what we could ever understand. In fact, this 
psalm moves in that direction. You get into verse 5, and it, we see the answers to the chosen. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And God does such amazing things on behalf of his people. But notice what it says, the awesome deeds you answer us with. Righteousness. You think of all of the ways that God has rescued you in your life and provided for you. Sometimes we don't always see it, but oftentimes we can look back on circumstances in life and say, ah, I see how God was working in that now. But here's what we can't, we can never know is how many moving parts are taking place in God's sovereign control over all things that are working for your good. There's an incalculable amount of things that God is working at one time, and we might be aware of one or two of those things. That's how amazing and awesome God's deeds are that He answers our prayers with. It's beyond our estimation, but yet to God, it's nothing. Why is that? Well, God is infinite, and we are finite. Let me give you an example of this. Tony Reiki gives this example in his book on God and technology. He says this, in, in God's sovereignty, imagine if you had a 55-gallon drum full of Legos. And you dump out those Legos, and you start building. For us, there would be an infinite amount of things that we could build that we would never exhaust all of the combinations that we could make of a 55-gallon drum of Legos. We would never exhaust it. But to God, it's nothing. Why? God's infinite. We're finite. So in God's sovereignty over all that happens in our life, in answering our prayer, what seems like to us an infinite amount of possibilities that God has been over, God's infinite. God's working all things out perfectly. For Him, it is nothing. Notice this is the hope. This is the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people. So if you ever begin to question, can God answer my prayers? Can God get me out of this situation? Will you just look at this and sing this? Who, who's the one who established the mountains. Climb a mountain? It's impossible to move. It's so massive. God's the one who laid them. He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Have you ever tried to stop a wave? God's the one who is sovereign over those. That's meant to comfort us. How awesome are his deeds in answering our prayers. 
Well, he's the one who put the mountains in place and can move the mountains. He's the one who makes the ocean and the sea roar as it does. He's the one who can stop it. He's the one who can stop the sun during a battle so his people may prevail. Do we think he can answer our prayers? Absolutely he can. But he is Lord over all things. He's over the creation because he's the creator and he's over the maintenance of it. He upholds all things. Notice the purpose, verse 8. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. And you know what? I think that what this is saying is basically what Psalm 19 says, is that the heavens declare the glory of God, and it's undeniable. There's not a people group anywhere on the face of the earth that doesn't recognize God as creator. Those that do not have God's special revelation make an idol and wrongly worship God, But this is why man is without an excuse, because even God's invisible attributes may be known. And so they're in awe that there's a God that created. You cannot but look at the the earth to look into the sky and know that God has created all things. So I want you to see the blessing of this in verses 9 through 13. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. What is this speaking of? It's an abundance, isn't it? It's being supplied with food. But, but it's, not just, it's not just like you have enough. It's, like, it's a picture of abundance that you have from the crops. That God provides these things. So when does this happen? You visit the earth and water it. This is speaking of God's visitation. And where God's visitation is, there is an abundance of a harvest. In verse 10, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. Speaking of God's sovereignty over the fruit of the earth. In verse 11, this continues, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. And what's the picture? Is it as if if God had a a wagon cart and it's full of the harvest given to the people because the land is rich with food and blessing. That's the picture. Verse 12, it continues with this lush vegetation. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. It's personifying nature itself, speaking of the the earth that is groaning until the return of Christ is richly abundant with food. Verse 13 continues, The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Creation again is personified. There's only one way to understand these verses, and it's eschatologically. 
What do I mean by that? Well, let's survey the Bible for a moment. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11, we read this, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. When God created the earth, He created it lush with vegetation. That the, the earth would, would produce vegetation. And when He plants a garden in the middle we read this in Genesis 2.9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now just go back and reread the language of Psalm 65. God waters. God makes these things grow. It's God's wagon that's full of an abundance. And what is it? The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You, you see this blessing that is given to Adam in the garden where he has just this abundance of food. You can, you can eat anything in the garden and there's plenty for you to eat. You'll, you'll, you'll never ever run out of food here, Adam. You have all of this wonderful food. And I'll always make it, but there's just one tree don't eat of. Because when you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Well, we know that Adam ate of the tree. What happens? Chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. No longer can Adam just freely go in the garden without suffering, without pain and toil. That's why work is difficult for us. But yet, even in the curse of work and having to work to eat as we do, there's still the blessing that we're able to eat, right? I want to point out something in the text in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 5. There's this interesting thing we, we is oftentimes missed. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. This is different language than what's previously stated of the vegetation. When God planted a rich, luscious garden full of food, what we see is underneath that were these things that were not yet growing. And with the fall, they began to grow. And when they began to grow, they began to take over. Why is it that we have a hard time feeding the population of the world? Because we're constantly fighting the weeds You see a promise that God gives His people in the Mosaic Covenant. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read this in verse 11, And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord your swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open up to you his good treasury, the heavens, listen, to give rain to your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands and you shall lend to many nations. You know what's amazing about that is that God tells Israel when you inherit the land, if you're obedient, you'll be blessed. You'll have an abundance of food. You'll have rain that will water at the right time and you will experience a bountiful harvest. How did that work out for Israel? Well, it wasn't too long after they inherited the land that we read this in Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land. What is our experience? What is our experience in an agricultural community we pray for rain, and everyone gets on pins and needles on whether we're going to have rain or not. We just came out of, what, seven years of a drought? And then when we got rain, what do we do? Stop the rain. We have too much rain. And everyone will be worried in about three weeks of whether there will be rain. What is our experience? It's like an up and down of an abundance and no abundance. There's, there seems to be no stability. And so when you read the psalmist that says when God visits and there will be this abundance and it's speaking of it in the sense that it doesn't ever go away, our experience is not Eden. Our experience is actually what Adam experienced after our experience is much like what Israel experienced. We have droughts, and we have good years, and we have bad years. So when the psalmist speaks of God watering the land and there being this richness and this lush vegetation, what's he talking about? Isaiah 65 tells us what he's talking about. In verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens, and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another inhabit everlasting by the way they shall not plant in another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands they shall not labor in vain that's a removal of the curse 
or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This idea of this watering and God richly supplying is looking forward to what we experience in the new heavens and the new earth. And John records simply what Isaiah recorded when John writes this in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Blessed is the one that the Lord chooses and brings near to dwell with him. There will be a lushness and a richness that we cannot even comprehend awaiting us. Now, while we await the new heavens and the new earth in their fullness, I want you to notice what we're given in Christ right now. Who says this? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? And to whom is Jesus speaking when he asks that? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? Who asks this question? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear? And to whom was he addressing? Why do you worry about where you're going to live? Who asks these questions? And to whom is he addressing? When you answer that question, it's Jesus, and he, he is addressing his disciples. And if you are in Christ, you are his disciple. He right now provides for you an abundance of your needs. It's a foretaste of what will be without measure in the new heavens and the new earth. What a wonderful psalm this is that we have a God that listens and answers our prayers. He takes care of our sin problem. He gives us a place to live and ensures that we are fed. He gives us hope that one day we will realize the earth without sin and the presence of Christ will be very tangible for us in his presence. But that day has not yet arrived. So how now? In the words of Francis Schaeffer, how now shall we live? Ever before the face of our eternal majestic God, knowing that his presence is with us now because if you are in Christ, he has chosen you, he's accepted you, and he has brought you near, and he hears you. How now shall we live? Ever in his presence is how we shall now live always before the face of God. 
is how we are called to live even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises, for they are true. They are comforting. They give us such great hope. Father, it's beyond our, our comprehension to consider the new heavens, the new earth. It's beyond our comprehension to consider what we have now. We pray by your grace that we would meditate and reflect upon these realities, that we would not let the world to discourage us or to get us down, but we would be reminded of the hope that we may have in Christ. I pray that we would be reminded in our hearts constantly that sin no longer has dominion over us, for Christ has set us free. I pray that we would always look to you and seek after you when we are tempted, and that we would know that you are a God who hears and answers our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.